You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Verse 30, and Israel, that's Jacob, Israel, said to Joseph, uh, they have this reunion, right? He comes all the way back into Egypt and he meets him. He sees him ruling. He says, now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. Uh, don't be myopic. He's not saying I want to die. He's saying, now I can die in peace. I've had an emptiness in my soul for 22 years thinking you were dead. Now my life is whole again. Uh, I'm at peace. Uh, uh, I've seen your face. Uh, Verse 31. uh, Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come. And the men are shepherds for their occupation has been to feed livestock. And they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. Take note of verse 32. Uh, He says, hey, listen, I'm going to tell Pharaoh, and he's going to look at you, and I'm going to tell him, uh, they're shepherds, and they've brought all their flocks. I want you to know Israel was a multimillionaire in modern-day equivalent. God had blessed him abundantly. And as he comes from Canaan, uh, the promised land, to Egypt, he brings all of his stuff, and he's got caravans of herds and flocks and all these things. Uh, He was renowned, right? He was a a powerful man. And uh, he says, hey, when Pharaoh sees all your livestock and all your flocks and and all that you have, he's going to know you're significant, right? And, And look what he says, verse 33. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you, And says, what is your occupation? That you shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth, even until now. Both we and our fathers, uh, this is our heritage, our our ancestry have been shepherds. uh, That you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Uh, Joseph is doing something here. He knew that the Egyptians were clean freaks. He knew that they didn't like shepherds. And he knew that they would distance themselves from shepherds. And so Joseph says, hey, listen, when you come, make sure that you tell them you are shepherds. Joseph is teaching his his family. He's leading his family. He's telling them uh, some important things here. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why is this so important to Joseph? Why is this recorded in the Bible? Well, here's why. Joseph knows that the materialism of Egypt, the wealth of Egypt, the hedonistic activity that is prevalent in Egypt would be dangerous to the spiritual health of his family, the nation Israel. He knew that it would be dangerous to their their relationship with God. That the cares of the world and the riches of the world and the temptations of the world, he knew it was out there. Uh, You would go into Egypt and and you would go into Cairo and there was Egyptian secret stores. And there was Lululemon and there was all the cares of the... There was the things that... The trappings of the world. It was a lot like... California. (laughs) And Joseph knew that these things of the world could be very dangerous to his family's spiritual health. Interesting. And so Joseph does something. He says, listen, I want you to tell them that you're shepherds. Because when you tell them that you're shepherds, they're not going to want to snuggle up next to you. And they're going to separate themselves for you. Uh, Here we see Joseph is concerned for the spiritual welfare of his family. What a great example, men, 
of what a spiritual leader looks like, of what a spiritual leader does. He's thinking ahead. He's preparing ahead. He's leading his family that are coming to him. He has a prayerful plan in place that he's already been talking with God about so that when his family comes to him, he already knows where he wants to take them. He carefully comes up with a plan to set apart his family from Egypt and to God. And I want to camp out here for a moment with you. I want you to know that our personal sanctification to God is vital to our spiritual health. Think about that for a minute. Uh, Let me say it again. Our personal sanctification to God is vital to our spiritual health. Let's unpack a couple words if we can. Uh, Sanctification, a fancy theological term that simply means being set apart. Being set apart to God. And in order to be set apart to God, you have to be set apart from the world. And Joseph is saying, guys, I want to set you apart. Uh, The Bible says that we're to be in the world, but what? Not of the world. Joseph, uh, knowing that, says, hey, I want you guys to be in Egypt, but not of Egypt. I remember as when I was younger, my kids were little, I used to love taking them to the beach. I have four kids, uh, three boys and a girl, and uh, we used to love going to the beach. But when I would take them out of the water, I was always concerned about one thing as a father. You know what I was concerned about? Riptides. Riptides. Because you take them out into the water, and what happens? They're small. They're, they're young. Uh, they can swim, but they're, you know, they're, they're 50 pounds or 40 pounds. And, and a riptide can easily pull them out into the current, into places where they should not be. And so I would make sure that when we were in the water, I would look at it, I would read it, I would see, and we would go to the place to make sure where there was no riptide so that my kids didn't get sucked into oblivion. Now, why am I talking about riptides? Because when you go to the beach, they're there. But you know what happens? When you walk out these doors, guess what's there? Riptides. Riptides. And they want to pull you into materialism. And they want to pull you into, are you pretty enough? Are you sexy enough? Are you rich enough? Are you powerful enough? Uh, Do you have enough people serving you? Uh, Do you have a cool enough car? Do you live in a cool enough neighborhood? All these things are, they'll suck you out into places where you should not be. And Joseph, knowing the riptides of the world, says, hey, when you come in, I want to know, I want you to know, uh, tell them that you are shepherds. Because shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. And they will send you into a land of Goshen, and and you will not intermarry with them, and you won't be sucked into the riptide. Uh, So important uh, that we know these things, right? Again, let's say it again. Let me hear you say it. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. I can take you to scores of verses that talk about the importance of our sanctification. So we define that word. Now let's define the word vital. Sanctification is vital to our spiritual health. What does vital mean? Essential, important, significant. You go to the doctor, they check your vital signs before they do anything. And our sanctification is vital to our spiritual health. As Christians, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. And again, scores of verses I could take you to. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You're in the world's riptide. And you're not in the love of the Father. Uh, As Christians, we have to set ourselves apart from the world. And I want you to know, 
This by design does not happen automatically. This by design, by whose, whose design? By God's design. This by design has to be an intentional act of our heart, of our mind, of our will, or it will not happen. If you just walk out your front door without being intentional about being sanctified, you will be sucked into the riptides of the world. It's just going to happen. And so we need to be wise. Uh, uh, there's an intentional act that has to be done in our heart uh, to, to put God first in our life. And if I can tell you something that I have observed in my many years of pastoring, uh, many Christians in the world make very little effort to sanctify themselves to God. I will be so bold to say most Christians in the world do not sanctify themselves to God. And as a result, they are weak. They are anemic. They are sick. And they are dying spiritually. For this reason, God seems afar off. And they wonder, God, why aren't you moving more in my life? Why don't I see you doing the things that I see in the Bible? I see you sculpting Joseph and through prison and, and hardship and being sold as a slave and all these things, he comes out shining and he comes out significant, formed and fashioned, a man of character and wisdom and discernment and leadership skills and selflessness, a, a, a substantial man. Why am I not like that? Well, the question would have to be asked. Are you sanctifying yourself? You see, the Bible repeatedly teaches scores of verses I could take you to that our personal sanctification to God is vital for your spiritual health. And so here's some of those verses. Here's some things to ponder. Uh, It'll be on your screens, but I'm not going to have you read it. I want you to just listen carefully to these words. It's Romans chapter 12. Paul would speak, and he'd say, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Think about this. I beseech you. What does beseech mean? I beg you. I am on bended knee begging you. Why, Paul? Why is this so important to you? Because your spiritual health depends on it. It is vital. I beseech you, I beg you, that you would present your body as a living sacrifice. Holy. What does that mean? It means separated from the world. Separated to God. Holy and acceptable to God. Which is your reasonable service. I want you to know something. You did not make yourself. God made you. You did not come into this world so you could accomplish all of your things for you. No, no, no. God created you to be in fellowship with him. God has a plan for your life, but he gives you the choice to walk in it or not. And in order to walk in it, you have to set yourself apart to him. Uh, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. He paid the price. Not only did he create you, but he paid the price for your redemption. The Bible would say you are not your own. You've been bought with a price by the blood of Jesus Christ, God who became a man and died on a cross so that you didn't have to pay the punishment of your sins. So you could be forgiven. So you could have grace and mercy flowing freely into your life. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, give your life to God. It's just your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Spending time in God's word. Looking to him. Not getting sucked into the riptides of the world but being transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove or that you might experience what is that good and perfect will of God. 
Do you know what Joseph is doing? Do you know what's happening in his life? His life is experiencing or proving God's perfect will. This dream he had at 17 years old is coming to fruition. Only he's not a selfish leader like he viewed leadership at 17. Now he is a selfless leader. And what he is doing is building others. And he is transforming and impacting and, 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 and blessing and, and bringing substance to thousands of thousands and thousands of lives as God is using him powerfully. And he is experiencing what is that good and perfect will of God. It is evident in his life. He looks like a man of substance. He looks like a man of character. He has wisdom. He has discernment. He knows which way to go. He knows how to lead his family. He has God's hand on his life. God has sculpted him. And it is flat out impressive. How God builds a man. And we're studying this, not because God did this one time for Joseph, but this is God's manner with men, which is astonishing. And by men, I mean humans, men and women. God wants to mold you. He wants to shape you. He wants to prove his good and acceptable and perfect will in your life that you might experience it and walk it out and be raised up, sculpted by God. Have you ever looked at a sunset and go, man, why is that sunset so beautiful? How many would agree? The sunset doesn't need to be that beautiful. There is some artistic work in there, right? Just for showing off. Just so that you would look at it and you go, God, it's amazing. And you look at the green valley and you go, oh my gosh. You look at the mountain range, oh my gosh, just stunning, beautiful. You stare up into the night sky and you see the Milky Way, the belt of Orion, the Milky Way galaxy, the, uh, the, the ever-expanding universe that has no end, that is stunning in glory and beauty as the heavens declare the glory of God. And you go, God, you're an amazing artist. Now here's the question. Who do you want sculpting your life? He is showing you the glory of his creation, the beauty of his artwork. So you would say, Lord, do that with me. He has done it with Joseph, and it looks spectacular. That is the man I want to be. And that is the man that God is building. That is the work that he is doing, what he wants to do in our lives. Repeatedly, the Bible teaches that we're to sanctify ourselves. This is God's will for our lives. And when we sanctify ourselves, do you know what we're doing? When we're setting ourselves apart to God, when we're saying, God, I don't want to be sucked up in the world, the, the, the rip current of life. I want to be set apart to you. Do you know what we're doing? We're telling God, God, you are my greatest love. You are my greatest treasure. And therefore, it has to be an intentional act on our part. It does not happen automatically by design because God wants us to respond to him. Isn't that crazy? Your creator wants you to respond to him, wants you to respond to his love. Uh, I'm watching my uh, two-year-old, excuse me, my one-year-old uh, granddaughter uh, as my uh, son is away on, on a trip. Um, and uh, so much fun to have her over at the house, right? Uh, and I've just been loving on her. It's just a total blast. And I do all these different things to try to get her attention and try to make her laugh and to try to go have fun. Why? Because I want her to what? I want her to respond to me. I want her to go, man, my grandpa loves me. And I want her to go, I love him because he loves me so much. And Jesus would say, if you being evil, you being selfish, you being greedy, know how to love your children, how much more your heavenly father loves you. God wants you to respond. It was abounding love, right? It's amazing. Uh, and so the Bible teaches this over and over again. I want you to know this. Again, I could take you to scores of verses. Uh, uh, how many of you would like to know, I want to know God's will for my life. How many of you would like to know that? I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you raised your hand. We often go through life. I want to know God's will for my life. Well, today I'm going to tell you, here's God's will for your life. Uh, do you know what that is? Well, it's on your screens. First Thessalonians chapter four, big, huge verse. Let me hear you read it. Wow. 
One little tiny verse. This is God's will for your life. Oh, I've always wanted to know, what's God's will for my life? Your sanctification. That you would set yourself apart to him. No, 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 no. I, that's not what I want to, that's not what I meant. You tricked me. I want to know who's my husband. That's what I want to know. I want to know who's my wife. I want to know if I should make this investment. I want to know if I should build this company. I want to know if I should do this or do this. I want to know God's will. This is God's will for your life, your sanctification. God gave Joseph a dream. Joseph, I want to use your life. I want to make you an amazing leader. Ooh, I like that. How do I do it? Well, don't go brag in front of your brothers. That didn't work too good. <laughs> Take on my ways and learn of me. Set yourself apart to me. And you know what happened? I'll bring all these things into fruition. If you sanctify yourself to me, I'll show you the guy you should marry. If you sanctify yourself to me, I'll give you the wisdom and discernment to run a business like a godly man in a way that I can use and edify and bless to build more than widgets, to build the people in your company. And I'll take care of the finances. And I'll show you where to build your house. And I'll show you. It all begins with the will of God, your sanctification. Jesus would say it this way. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. I'll show you. That's called walking by faith, right? And it begins with our sanctification. And repeatedly, the Bible tells us this. Here's the question then. It begs the question, doesn't it? How are you doing here? Are you sanctifying yourself? For I have found that most Christians do not sanctify themselves. And therefore, they are weak and anemic, as I've already said. How are you doing? If this is the will of God for you, are you sanctifying yourself? Do you sanctify yourself? You say, well, when should I do that? When, when, when? You do it daily. Daily. You wake up in the morning, and I'll just tell you what I do. Lord, thank you so much for a brand new day of life. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Because I know I sinned a bunch yesterday. I thank you that you forgive me of my sins. And you don't keep a record of wrong against me. And that your love is for me. And that you want to use my life today. To build others. To help them see just what an amazing God you are. Your tremendous love for them. So Lord, as I go to church today. I want to teach on setting our lives apart to you. Lord, Lord, build your church. Life is hard. We face struggles in marriage. We face struggles at work. We face struggles with our kids, with our neighbors. And Lord, when your people come into your house today to worship you, would you reveal yourself to them? And would you use me, Lord, any way you wish to help do that? What am I doing? I'm just setting myself apart to God. I'm not telling you any of this to boast as if I'm something. I'm telling you I'm these things to show you how easy it is, how practical it is. But it must be intentional. It does not happen automatic. And if you go out into the ocean without checking the tide, you for sure will get sucked in to a dangerous rip current that will take you places you never wanted to go, you never should be, that are way too dangerous for you. And you cannot handle it. And by setting yourself apart to God, you'll be in the center of God's will. You say, well, how do I do it? How do I do it? Well, just wake up in the morning and say, Lord, I know you value generosity. I want to be generous today. You've been so generous to me to forgive me of all my sin yesterday. I can't believe I wake up today and your mercies are new morning by morning and I'm totally righteous before you because of what you did for me on the cross, Jesus. You are so selfless. 
I can't believe your abounding love for me today. You're so generous to me. So Lord, help me today to reflect your generosity. As I go out today, I want to be generous in my words, in kindness, with my money, with my encouragement. Help me to be generous today, Lord. I set myself apart to you. Oh, you'll experience God's power working in and through your life. It's amazing. Uh, Lord, I want to be set apart to you today. I want to be pure of heart. Uh, Lord, uh, yesterday I gossiped. Uh, Lord, today, I thank you for cleansing me. Lord, today, no gossip out of my lips. And Lord, I have found that social media sucks me into a life that I don't want to be. I, it just pulls me in. I, I want I mean, no social media for me today, Lord. I'm setting myself apart to you. And Lord, I want to spend time in your word today. I want, to, I want to worship you. I want to be one who goes out today and speaks no harsh words to others. And Lord, I want to be gracious like you. Lord, I want to look at you today. Help me to see you as I open your Bible right now. That's a lot different than going, oh, here's my daily bread before I, okay, my daily bread, I did it. That's just a religious, vain religion. Are you setting yourself apart to God? Look at how Joseph is sanctifying himself. It's amazing. He's intentional. Uh, uh, here's another verse for you on sanctification. Colossians 3. If you were raised with Christ, let's pause there. Were you? Is Jesus your Savior? Well, if you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is. Get into his presence. Sitting at the right hand of God, ruling over all things. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Why? Because you died, remember? You died to living like an animal for all your fleshly appetites, all your carnal desires. Do you know that you are different than the animals of the world that only live for their carnal appetites, what they should eat, who they should have sex with, and how they can get pleasure at this moment in their life. That's how an animal lives. Don't walk around like a horny beast. <laughs> you think I'm being crass. I'm not. That's biblical. The Bible says you walk around sniffing the air like a wild dromedary. You know what a wild dromedary, a wild dromedary in heat. He's just, he's just basically saying what I just said, right? Don't be like that. Set yourself apart to God. Uh, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth, because you died to all those things. Remember? Remember your baptism? You said, oh, Lord, I don't want to be controlled by my flesh. I die to that. I want to be led by your spirit. I want to live to that. And remember your baptism daily. Paul would say, I die how often? Daily. What's he saying? I set myself apart from the world, and I set myself apart to God, right? Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died. Your life is hidden with Christ. All your sins forgiven in Christ, uh, in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Uh, therefore, go rest of the verse. Therefore, put to death in your members, uh, in your body parts, uh, which are things on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, Evil desires to just step on everybody and be the best. Covetousness, greedy, 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 which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourself once walked in those things. You've been saved from all that. Don't go back to it. Don't go back to it. Go to the things that you've been called. You've been called to live above. Uh, amazing, right? And Joseph knows this. And he says, listen, guys. You're in Egypt, and Egypt is a dangerous place. There's a Lululemon on every corner. There's yoga pants in every Starbucks. There's, it's there, man. Set yourself apart. And tell Pharaoh when you stand before him that you're a shepherd. Because shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. And they will take you out of the 
carnality of the world, and they'll put you in the land of Goshen, which just happens to be the most fertile land, right there on the fertile crescent of the Nile Delta. Uh, it'll be great, and you'll be separated from them, and you'll be in, the, in Egypt, but not of Egypt. You'll be set apart to God, and you'll thrive. Joseph knows that not only do we want to be sanctified in our daily lives, but also in our most intimate relationships. He doesn't want his brothers marrying who? Lululemon women. <laughs> Egyptian women. Hey, if you wore Lululemon pants today, I'm just, yeah, I'm, just I'm joking. Relax, relax, it's okay. Uh, I sure can't get myself in trouble. Uh, he, he doesn't want his brothers marrying Egyptian women who are not set apart to God. He learned from his grandfather, great-grandfather Abraham, who went into Egypt and took who? Hagar, an Egyptian hottie who caused him all kinds of problems. He remembers what his Grandfather Isaac did. He said, told his servant Eleazar, go to my people and get a bride from my people so that Isaac does not take a bride from these Canaanite people who are not set apart to God. And so he remembers all these things and he wisely instructs his brothers, tell them you're shepherds because every shepherd is an abomination uh, to the Egyptians. By the way, uh, if I can take a little sidebar for a second, uh, I mentioned this, uh, I think last week, uh, these kind of statements in the Bible that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians, these kind of statements are incredibly dangerous for the Bible to make. They are... Uh, uh, Authentic, authentic, authentic suicide if they're wrong. And you want to know something? The archaeologist Spade always proves that these things are not only not wrong, but are dead on the money. Uh, uh, these things are exactly right. Archaeologists have found out that Egyptians were indeed clean freaks. That's why they were all shaven. That's why they, uh, and they, they separated themselves from uh, shepherds. Uh, there's artwork in Egypt of shepherds that look like they're lame, like, you know, they're missing a limb and they got no teeth and they're like dirty and, and the Egyptians are all pristine and set apart from them. Archaeology shows and proves the Bible over and over and over. I have a really cool thing to show you. Uh, there is a tomb, uh, a chapel of Canoptic, Canoptic II. Uh, here it is right here. Put it up on the screens for me. Uh, Canoptic II. Uh, he was the chief Egyptian chief under Pharaoh Sennacherib II. Uh, it just so happens that his reign was, uh, they, they estimate his, his, his reign from 1911 to 1870. And this is a picture of his tomb right here. It's actually a chapel. Uh, and uh, this is actually uh, Canoptic II here on the left, of the, this, this picture here. Go to the next slide for me, if you will. This is actually a picture of him right here. He's, that's a boat, and he's fishing on the Nile. Now, the date of this is 1870. And this is a Egyptian hero who is ruling under Pharaoh. Guess what date we just happen to be in on the day that Israel presents himself to Joseph to Pharaoh? 1876 BC. Just so happens the exact time period of this. You are probably looking at a color picture of Joseph. That is extremely probable that is Joseph you're looking at fishing on the Nile go back to the big picture if you will uh, there's his tomb there he is fishing on the Nile go to the next slide if you will uh, next one 
Here is a picture of the mural. If you look, I want you to notice the humans that are in this picture. Look at the top. Uh, you can see that these are Egyptians. You can tell by the color of their skin, their, their shaven heads, their bow and arrow. They're hunting uh, wild game, right, with bow and arrow. Uh, look down below that, and you'll see there are some Semitic people in a line. Uh, go to the next slide. We'll get a close-up of this. Here is the Egyptians hunting. You can see, you can clearly see what they look like. Definitely Egyptian men hunting. Go to the next slide. Check this out. Here is a delegation. Now, uh, with, with, these, with these murals that were there in Egypt, there's also all kinds of hieroglyphics underneath that are explaining all this. And they call this delegation, there were 37 of them, 37 people. They call them the delegation of Amu. And Amu, it says, were nomadic Semites who lived northeast of Egypt that came and presented gifts to Pharaoh. Well, who lives northeast of Egypt? That's the land of Israel, the promised land, Canaan, right? And notice this picture. They are clearly different looking than the Egyptians. They look Semitic. Uh, and uh, look at this close-up picture here. I wish you could see it in, in, in uh, it's hard to see on the screens. It's even more if you look at it in, in real life. Um, but notice this. They're all lined up bringing their gifts to Pharaoh. And what are they bringing? All kinds of livestock. Just like we just read in verse 32 or whatever that was. They brought all their stuff, all their livestock, all their, and they brought them to Pharaoh. And here they are doing it. You'll notice uh, very different haircuts, very different look than the Egyptians. And uh, zoom into this next picture. Check this out. Next one. Here's a close-up of uh, Israel's sons presenting these animals to the Pharaoh. There's an Egyptian leader right in front of them right here on the right of the screen, and they're standing in line to present their gifts to the Pharaoh. And you'll notice, guess who's in the front of the line? You'll notice he has a coat of many colors. This is very likely, all probability, 99%, this is Benjamin. For Joseph was uh, Israel's favorite son. And Joseph received a coat of many colors. But, ben, uh, but Israel thought Joseph was dead. And Reuben was his favorite son that he kept behind, who would have then been given the coat of inheritance, the coat of many colors. And here is a picture of these nomadic Semites presenting themselves to Pharaoh, giving these offerings. And the guy in front there has a coat of many colors. Just a coincidence. Wow. Uh, what, Dave, what, what am I saying? All, why am I showing all this? Here's what I'm saying. Archaeological evidence repeatedly over and over and over authenticates the accuracy of God's word. Uh, just, it's amazing. Um, validates the Bible's authenticity. Uh, and there are tons of examples like this uh, that, the, that the Bible is just authentic. It's irrefutable. It talks about civilizations. It gives the names of kings. It gives the name of cultures. It gives the name of rulers. It gives the names of cities. It gives cultural examples like these, that the Egyptians are, uh, shepherds are an abomination, over and over and over, so much so that even every, every archaeologist, even those who are atheists, guess what they all carry with them? A Bible, because it is just archaeologically accurate in exquisite detail. And I want you to know this is not the case with other religious books. Uh, I'm going to give you a choice right now, very literally. Would you like to hear about this or would you just like to go on in the story? Would you like to hear about this? Uh, I hope I don't get too carried away. Other religious books are not like this. The Book of Mormon, for example, uh, says that in the Americas, uh, North America, South America, in the Americas, uh, I guess, let me take a step back and tell you why it says this. Uh, hang in there with me. This will be for a reason. Uh, if you're a Bible scholar, you know that Israel was taken into Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. 
Nebuchadnezzar burned Jerusalem to the ground. When we go to Israel in October, you can actually see a layer of strata where this happened. Uh, he took all of the Israelites captive and led them into Babylon, took them captive, and destroyed Jerusalem, just as the Bible predicted, just as Jeremiah had prophesied. And he did that. The Book of Mormon is plagiarism of the Bible. Uh, and, and Joseph Smith, uh, this worthless individual, uh, worthless individual, uh, plagiarized the Bible, and he said that not all of the Jews went captive into Babylon. Some of them God told to get into little saucers. I'm not making this up. Get into boats that were made like flying saucers. They had no rudder. They had no sails. And when you got into them, you had no way of controlling them. And that the Jews, somehow to escape the Babylonian captivity, got into these saucers, got into the Mediterranean Sea, went across the Mediterranean Sea, into the Atlantic, and somehow came to the Americas without a rudder, without a sail, without anything, in these little saucers. And when they got here, they had to fight these epic battles. And in these epic battles, they had uh, uh, swords and spears and shields and silver and bronze and iron. Problem? There was no archaeology has discovered there was no iron, there was no forging, there was no shields, there was no spears. The uh, Indians did not use any of those things. All of those things were brought over in the 16th century when the Europeans came to America. Uh, for you history buffs, you remember 1492, what? Columbus, Columbus sailed the seas of blue, right? And, came to, and guess what they brought over? Uh, all these uh, metals, this metallurgy, where, 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 where that was done in Europe for centuries, right? Uh, but it wasn't in the Americas. Book of Mormon says it was. They came over here and fought these giant battles. It says they fought these giant battles. One of them was on this hill Cumorah that it says, and that thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands died on this hill Cumorah in this epic battle with all these shields and spears and everything else that do not exist, right? Uh, and uh, the archaeology Evidence, zero. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. Uh, and uh, no, uh, no iron. It talks about there being uh, cows here and cattle here and sheep and horses here in the Americas. Guess what? No cattle in the Americas. No horses in the Americas. The Spaniards brought horses to the Americas through Mexico up into... And there, if you're a horse lover, you can think Spain. Uh, no horses in the Americas. In the Book of Mormon, you say, Dave, why do you know this about the Book of Mormon? Here's why. Because I had family who was stuck in that cult. And I studied all this to learn this stuff. Uh, and I need to discipline myself because I could go on and on right now. Uh, back, to our, back to our study. All that to say, archaeological evidence validates the Bible over and over and over again. No other religious book does it do this? Just the opposite, as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, for one thing, uh, I said I'd stop, and here I go. <laughs> Joseph Smith, this, this criminal, this scoundrel, this cheater, this stealer, he, the Book of Mormon was only written 190 years ago, and he did not know his history. He just assumed, because there was shields in Israel in the Bible, there would be shields in North America, and he was a liar. Uh, so anyway, be wise. Uh, um, man, I have my heart wanting to tell you more things and I need to move us on. Um, Joseph here, he takes his role as spiritual leader very seriously. He takes it very seriously and he sanctifies his family. He knows that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians and so he sets apart his family from Egypt to God so that God can work in their lives and build them and bless them and, and prosper them and, and use their lives in powerful ways. And church, may we be wise. May we set ourselves apart to God every morning. Amen? May we take these things to heart. Joseph casts this vision for his family, and now look what he does. Now he's going to make sure Pharaoh's on board too. What a good leader. Look at chapter 47. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh. He told his family this. Now he's going to tell Pharaoh the same thing. And he tells them, my father and my brothers 
uh, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. Yeah, they brought a ton of stuff, man. All their, all their wealth, very wealthy family. Uh, and indeed, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men among his brothers and he presented them to Pharaoh. That's what you just saw on the screens. Is that not remarkable? You just saw a color picture of this. Uh, and they presented themselves to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? Joseph was wise. He knew how Pharaoh would respond. He knew how things worked. What is your occupation? And they said, we are your servants. Shepherds, both we and also our fathers. Fathers doesn't mean dad there. It means this is our ancestry. We've been, we've been shepherds for generations. Verse 4. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land. Uh, the word dwell there in the New King James is unfortunately not the best translation. Uh, the Hebrew word is gur, and it means to sojourn or to stay temporarily. We have come to temporarily stay in the land of Egypt, they're telling him, uh, because your servants have no pasture for their flocks. Why don't you? Well, because the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. The famine is severe worldwide. They're in this seven-year famine. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you, Joseph. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Very interesting, by the way. The word that Pharaoh uses for dwell is a different word than gur. He uses a word that means to stay there permanently, right? Uh, <clears throat> the ways of the world will always take you out of the will of God, right? Uh, uh, <clears throat> he says, now, uh, have them dwell in the land of Goshen, and if you know any competent men among them, make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Here we see Joseph had such a good example he was such a good witness of a godly man. He was such a good witness in character and in behavior that when Pharaoh sees his brothers, he says, I want them to watch over my flocks. I want them, uh, if you know a guy who can, uh, just like you, man, then, then I want to give him my portfolio, can have him take it, because and, and, it'll, it'll be amazing. So important that we have a good reputation with unbelievers. Pharaoh, even the Pharaoh sees it. And he says, you guys stand out among all. And I want you guys on my team, right? That's just a good witness. Um, what verse did I leave off on? Sorry. Seven? Uh, yeah, yeah. Verse seven. So Joseph brought in his father Jacob. And set him before Pharaoh. Uh, this is interesting. So uh, he brought five of his brothers. Why just five? I don't know. Uh, maybe he took the ones that were the best looking, the most articulate, uh, the ones that had all their teeth. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> brings, the, brings five of his brothers to stand before Pharaoh. And now they leave. And now he brings in Israel to stand before Pharaoh. And this reveals a couple of things. Uh, it's not easy to get an audience in front of Pharaoh, Right? It reveals how significant, how wealthy, how influential, how prominent Israel is. He's brought this entire entourage with him, uh, all these animals, and he has seat single-handedly before the Pharaoh. And look at this, verse 7. Joseph brought in his father and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Not Pharaoh blessed Jacob. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. The Bible clearly teaches that the greater blesses the lesser, right? And Israel comes in, and he says, oh, bless you, Pharaoh. Uh, and he starts, he starts this meaningful conversation with him that we're going to look at right now. We're going to wrap up on some of these things. He has this meaningful conversation. He blesses Pharaoh, uh, and Pharaoh says to him, how old are you? Uh, uh, an old guy, right? He's 130 years. His age, he just, 
uh, his stature, all that he has, it, it just demands Pharaoh's respect. Pharaoh says, how old, how old are you, sir? Uh, verse 9, and Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage, I want you to underline my pilgrimage, are 130 years. Uh, he will live to be 147. Uh, I'm 130 years old. Uh, look what he says. I want you to underline this. Few and evil, underline that. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers, in the days of their pilgrimage. Uh, he's saying, listen, I'm 130, but my father Abraham died at 175. Excuse me, my, uh, uh, my grandfather Abraham died at the age of 170. My father Isaac died at 180. Uh, uh, and so Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and he went out from before Pharaoh. He had a meaningful conversation with him about God, told him about life, and he goes out before him. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, which is the modern name for uh, Goshen, the same place, uh, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided for his father, for his brothers, and for all of his father's household with bread, according to the number of their families, he took care and provided and blessed all of them. I'm going to ask you to skip all the way to verse 27. Uh, we're not going to skip it ultimately. We're just going to cover it next week, not this week. Verse 27. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen. And check this out. And they had possessions there. And they grew there. And they multiplied exceedingly there. They sanctified themselves from Egypt. They set themselves apart from Egypt and to God. And there they grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years old, and he died. Uh, amazing, amazing. Uh, I want you to see some things here. I want you to look at the growth in Jacob's life, in Israel's life. Do you remember Jacob when he was younger? What would a younger Jacob do when he stood before Pharaoh? Well... Let me tell you how amazing I am. And let me flatter you and trick you so I can work angles to get what I want from you. That was the old Jacob. Look what God has built. Look at Jacob's character. Look at how Jacob responds. God has built his man. And let's look at the things that he tells the Pharaoh. There are three things he tells Pharaoh that are quite significant. I asked you to underline them. The first one is this. Few have been the days of my pilgrimage. How old are you, dude? You look older than dirt. <laughs> well, Pharaoh, I'm 130, but I want you to know I've only lived a few days. What's that? What's he saying? Here's what he's telling Pharaoh. Pharaoh, life is incredibly short. You might want to take note, Pharaoh. Life is incredibly short. When we are young, we don't realize how fast time flies by. I remember being in my 20s, having kids, thinking, I'll be in my 20s forever. And not so. It seems like just yesterday, Lisa and I were having our children's birthday parties in the backyard. Pinatas hanging from the the. the uh, patio cover and kids blindfolded, swinging bats and hitting all kinds of things. It was amazing. And you know what I just had a couple of weeks ago? My grandson's two-year-old birthday in my backyard. Now my son, and I watched him do all the things that I, it just delighted my heart. But it's gone by so fast. It's just flown by. How did it happen? We don't realize it. It goes so quickly. And the Bible tells us this. Joseph stands before Pharaoh and he says, listen, Pharaoh, I want you to know your life's going to be short, man. Your life's going to be short. 
Bible teaches this over and over. I'm going to give you three verses, rapid fire, really quick. The first one's Job 14. Take a look on your screens. Let me hear you read this. Man who is born of women is of few days and full of trouble. Let's pause there. That sounds just like what Jacob said. Wow. There must be some biblical wisdom here. He comes forth like a flower and he fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. His days are determined. The number of his months is with you, God. God, you determine the number of his months. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. In other words, God knows the very number of your days and they were foreordained. God is that sovereign. And God has set a boundary for you, and you have this much time. Jesus, in, the, in Luke 16, tells of a story, uh, and he tells uh, uh, this steward who has been wasting his master's goods, and the steward says these words. The master comes to the steward, and the master says to the steward, give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. That happened on a day when the, when the steward had no idea what was going to happen. The master just come and said, hey, Time's up. Give an account of your stewardship. You can no longer be steward. I have that in my underwear drawer. <laughs> Why? Uh, TMI, sorry. Uh, <laughs> why? Because I want to remember, life is short, man. There's going to come a day when God's going to tell me, Dave, give an account of your stewardship. You can no longer be steward. What'd you do with all I gave you? And Joseph, excuse me, uh, Israel stands before Pharaoh and he says, listen, Pharaoh, time is short. Time is short. Here's what else the Bible says that on this. Uh, Psalm 39. Uh, Lord, this is David writing. Lord, make me to know my end that I might, uh, uh, and what is the measure of my days that I might know, that I might grasp, that I might understand how frail I am. Or in other words, how quick it is, right? Indeed, you have made my days as a handbreadth. You know what a handbreadth is? It's a distance from here to here. In God's perspective, this is how long your life is. It's about, you're about this long. You're 80 years, if you're, if you're blessed, about this much, right? Uh, my days before you were like handbreadths. My age is nothing before you. You're the eternal God. Certainly every man at his best state is just a what? A vapor. You ever see the vapor come out of the teapot? You see it for a second and it's gone. And David would say, Lord, I realize that's my life on earth but life goes on eternally lord you are eternal you are ageless telling pharaoh some things here life is short pharaoh pay attention one more for you if life is that short james gives us some instruction on how we should live james 4 take a look at this come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and we'll spend a year there and we'll buy and sell we're going to set it we're going to we're going to build some condos there and we're going to make a profit he says listen you don't even know what will happen tomorrow for what is your life here it is again it is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away rest of the verse instead you ought to say if the lord wills we shall live and do this or that uh, that's not saying, well, I'm just going to say this, if the Lord wills. No, 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 no. It's not what he's saying. Look what he says. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. What do you, what do you mean? Yeah, I'm going to go build this. We're going to Florida, and we're going to build houses in Florida. We're going to Texas. We're going to build this development in Texas. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. I'm going I'm to set this up. I'm going to retire. I'm gonna... You might want to think about things a little differently. He's not against planning. But here's what he is against. Take a look at this. Uh, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil, evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him is a sin. Why does it put that on this end of this verse on talking about how short time is? If you know to do good and you don't do it, it's a sin. Here's why. Because we say, I'm going to go build this condo development in Texas, and I'm going to do this. And then just, you get that project done, you go, now I'm going to do one in this state, and I got one more project here. And later I'll serve God. When I get older, I'll serve God. First, I want to play college football. First, I want to be on the high school baseball team. When I get out of high school, I'll serve God. Then you go to college. Well, I want to sleep around. When I get out of college, I'll serve God. Well, now I got some money. I want to party. I'm going to travel. When I get done with that, I'll serve God. 
And he said, listen, you knucklehead who's boasting about tomorrow, you don't know how long your life is. And if you know to do good, you better do it now because your life is a vapor. Why? Because you don't know when God's going to say, give an account of your stewardship, you can no longer be steward. And you think you're going to stand before your creator and go, look at these condos I built, God. Look how many Teslas I had. Look how many women I slept with. Look how many countries I visited. Check out my passport. I don't think so. Be wise. The first thing Joseph tells Pharaoh is, life is incredibly short, Pharaoh. You might want to pay attention. The second thing he tells him is, I'm a pilgrim. The days of my pilgrimage. In other words, this world is not my home. And Pharaoh, I know you got a big kingdom, but I hate to tell you something, Pharaoh. You are a pilgrim. And this kingdom that you think is yours, it's not even yours. It's not even your home. You're going to die and you're going to live it to some next Pharaoh. Uh, we just looked at these pictures on, on Egypt. That was the 12th dynasty. 12th dynasty? Well, there were a lot of dynasties before you, and there's a lot of what? Dynasties after you. Pharaoh, this is not your kingdom, right? Uh, this world is not your, not your home, he says. Uh, Pharaoh, I have a king, and he rules the universe, and I'm going home to him soon. I'm just a stranger on this earth. I'm just a pilgrim. My kingdom awaits me. My king awaits me. And he's called me to walk with him in these things. I tell you, church, may we be found living as pilgrims in this world, valuing what really matters, uh, uh, thinking about what's really important so we don't get caught up in foolish things. I want you to think back to the first couch you ever bought. Do you remember buying your first couch? Oh, yeah, first couch. I remember my daughter, she's sitting here. Uh, she moved out for the first, well, I mean, after college. She came, you know, came out of college, came home, got a place, and she invited me over her house, and she bought a white rug. And I walked in her house, I go, baby, your place is so cute. And I stepped, Dad, don't step on the white rug. <laughs> oh, things are different now. <laughs> what about all the toothpaste on the drywall I cleaned off when you were brushing your teeth as a little girl? <laughs> don't step on my white rug. Yeah, remember the first couch you ever bought? You put plastic on it? <laughs> How important is that couch to you now? Oh, be careful what you're living for, he tells him. Be careful what you think is your kingdom. It wasn't just a few weeks later, I came over and I oh, oh, stepped on the... Oh, sorry, Mariah. Oh, I don't care. I already got stains on it. Step all over it. No problem, right? Yeah, it changes quickly, man. And he's telling Pharaoh, hey, hey, Pharaoh... This world is not your home, man. Be careful. I'm living as a pilgrim. Oh, that we would remember that. Uh, Jacob is blessing Pharaoh. This is how he's blessing him. Blessing him isn't saying, hocus pocus, there's a blessing. No, no, no. He's giving him wisdom. And God would say, that's my man, blessing that pagan with truth and substance. Wow. Wow. Uh, Few and evil have been my days. That's the third thing he tells them. Few and evil have been my days. What a different Jacob, by the way, as I mentioned earlier. The old Jacob would say, yeah, I'm pretty amazing. You know, I've made a lot of money in my day. I've ran a lot of companies. I was the CFO of this. I was the CEO of it. Aren't we crazy, these little titles we like? Joseph, not being part of that, says, just say you're a shepherd and shut up. <laughs> and Israel would get in there and he'd say, listen, uh, few and evil have been my days. What is he saying? Well, he's saying, Pharaoh, I want you to know something. You're, you're having me here because I have this big entourage, because I'm wealthy, because I'm this leader of this nation. I want you to know something, Pharaoh. I am not amazing, but God is. I am not the amazing one. God is the amazing one. Few and evil have been my days, Pharaoh. I want you to know I am just a product of God's grace and God's mercy and God's power. 
I have a huge family that walks with God. I have a remarkable son that God has raised up with his doing, right? He's wise, he's discerning, he's ruling your country. I am wealthy, I have God's covenant upon my life, I have God's favor. But I want you to know, Pharaoh, it's all by God's grace. You see, none of these things came from my greatness, Pharaoh. Let me tell you who I was. In my youth, I cheated everyone to promote myself. Few and evil have been my days. I'm embarrassed of my past. I worked every angle. I wrestled God my entire life trying to elevate myself. And then one day, as I was wrestling God, I surrendered to his amazing love for me. I realized I don't have to wrestle. And I just said, God, will you bless me? And he said, yes. And he's blessed me every day of my life when I deserve it and when I don't deserve it. I can't believe all that God has done for me. You wouldn't believe what a, what a wretch I was. I stole, I cheated. And I want you to look at this. Uh, Jacob is saying, listen, I've learned that blessing comes from just bathing in God's love and walking in obedience to God's way because you trust his love for you. That's what it means to make him Lord, Pharaoh. I'm not the amazing one. God is the amazing one. And I want you to look and to consider all that God has accomplished in Jacob's life. Who would have ever dreamed such a glorious outcome of such a wretched beginning? In the womb, fighting with his brother Esau. Always scheming, always looking for a way to deceive his brother. Always looking for a way to steal the birthright from him. Uh, uh, swindling Laban, his father-in-law. Uh, just living up to his name of a swindler. He even lied and deceived his own father in his old age when his father was blind in his old age. That's pretty low. And Jacob would say, listen, I'm not a good man. Few and evil have been my days. I learned how to trust in God's love and to rest in God's love. And it changed my life, Pharaoh. And we wonder how God could ever use such a wretched man. And we cannot look at Jacob's life without just marveling at God's grace and mercy. And we have to look at Jacob's life as we now approach the end of his life and say, God, why did you put up with him? Why didn't you write him off, that liar, that cheater, that swindler, that bragger, that boaster, that, that guy who worked every angle for his advantage? Why didn't you write him off and just use somebody else? Why did you bless him so abundantly? Why did you choose him to make a nation out of him and to make a covenant with him? And I want you to know something. There is no logical answer to any of those questions other than God set his love upon him. When we were sinners, when we were enemies of God, Jesus came and died for us. That is amazing love. And Jacob would say, listen, Pharaoh, I am not the amazing one. Don't give me any accolades. Few and evil have been my days. God is the amazing one. Jacob is conveying to Pharaoh, I don't deserve God's favor. I did not earn it. I'm not worthy of it. But Pharaoh, I want you to know God is good to all that come to him and set their lives apart to him. And he blesses them abundantly. And I want you to ponder and to consider the contrast that Pharaoh is hearing of Israel's God versus the pantheon of gods that are in Egyptian culture. Where you've got to sacrifice to appease your God and to please your God and you've got to cut off a hand and you've got to kill a son and you've got to... Oh, what a difference between the true and living God. And this is the blessing that he bestows upon Pharaoh. Let me introduce you to the true and living God that I set my life apart to because he's so amazing. His love transforms me. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.